in this chapter, more than the three other books that use the, the title Lord of Hosts. For, for as many chapters as we have, he uses it at least seven times per chapter, 14 times, two chapters. And when you look at Jeremiah, there's 51 chapters. He uses it like some 50 times or whatever it was, but it, uh, not even somewhere around there. But he uses it, you know, a lot, but it's a big book. And same thing with, with Zechariah. He has 14 chapters, and, and he might use it, I think he used it like 25 times. Or was that my, uh, Malachi? Be that as it may. They use the term, but here, Haggai, he uses it 14 times in two chapters. And that, that term, as I shared with you guys when we first started the book a few weeks ago, that that title is translated Lord of Heaven's Armies. And it speaks about warfare, and it speaks about service. And it literally means Jehovah in manifestation of power. And so when, when Haggai is, is referring to the Lord of hosts, he is talking about this power that, that, that's behind that title. He's not just calling him Lord. He's not just singing Kumbaya. He's saying, when, when I'm using this term, there's some power behind it. There's something behind this, this title, this name. And that's why I think it's an intense book. It's a short book, but it's been intense nonetheless. Now, we don't know what happened to Haggai after. Uh, after he gives his last message, again, after the time that he has done, um, again, some believe that he was an elderly prophet. He was a little older. It doesn't tell us when he died or anything like that. Um, but, but again, we just don't hear about him. But what I did find interesting is that he, in three and a half months, makes a lasting impression and a lasting impact on the nation of Israel. Not just when he came on the scene, but throughout history, Haggai has been important to the Jewish community to this day. And even though he speaks primarily to the nation of Israel... We, as Christians, as the body of Christ, can also glean from his messages. And so, even though he only came on the scene for three and a half months, 2,400 years later, man, we're still talking about it. We're still studying his book. And I think that's powerful. Because I think sometimes we think that ministry is not that significant. Or we really didn't do much. Or I wasn't involved that long. And the in the economy of God, that makes no difference. When, when, when God uses you at a specific time for a specific purpose, it makes a lasting impression on somebody else. I was talking to a young man who was at this dinner last night, and he went to school with my son. And I didn't recognize him at first because he's now a man. Uh, but, but this young kid was telling me, we started talking, and he just rededicated his life to the Lord. But he said something that that he was at work, and he does some insurance stuff, and, and he was having an issue with his shoulder, his back, whatever it was. Uh, that's how much attention I was pay, paying. But, um, <laughs> but that wasn't the issue. Somebody prayed for him. The customer says, hey, can I just pray for you? And he didn't, like, get healed miraculously or anything like that. But, dude, it just knocked his socks off. 
that somebody would pray for him. And he, he just says, hey, prayer is powerful. And what he was meaning, is, it brought me back to God because some customer prayed for me. And so, guys, don't ever discount what you get to do at any time of your life, even just to pray for somebody. It's so funny because as Christians, that's what we do. We pray. And we forget that not everybody does. And when you pray for someone, they get blown away that you would actually do that for them. And I find it fascinating that, that at times when we're praying and I say, Lord, I, I mention somebody's name and I just pray, Lord, somehow speak to them that their name has been brought up in heaven to the throne room. And again, man, that it would be lasting and that we make an impact, just like Haggai did. And so Haggai chapter 2, let's begin in verse 10. We'll go to the end of the chapter, but we'll just read from 10 to 19, and then we'll cover the rest at the end there. It says, Now on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now, ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean, because of a dead body, uh, touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of your hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now clear, uh, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to the heap of 20 ephod, there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths for the press, there was but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hand. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward on the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit? From this day I will bless you. Now, let, let's go back and, and kind of look at where we're at as we're going to be finishing up this book in just a bit. Once again, we have an exact day. Again, that blows my mind. It really, really does how exact this guy is. That, that in this short little book, this guy, man, he took some good stinking notes. 
I mean, he, he wrote down the day and said, this is the day that God spoke to me to speak to the people. And again, some of you guys know the exact day when God spoke to you when you got saved. November 21st, 1979 for me. I could take you to the place on the job site where I got saved. And because on that day was a very important day for this little guy. It changed me. Something happened. And so to have exact dates, now I might not remember all the dates, but I remember that day because it was important. And to me, when Haggai is writing and he's writing these things down, the Lord spoke to me on this day. And it was important for him to, to understand that and he wrote it down for us. And he has another message that the Lord of hosts has given this guy. And this date falls on December 18th, 520 B.C. Two, man, two months from the last message. The last message that he got was October 17th of that year. Now, looking back on my notes, last week I was talking about these, these dates and I had given you the date of December 10th. I must have did a little typo. But it was, it's December 18th. See, I want to get, get it right um, because he got it right. I got it wrong. Now, in between those two months, from October to December, there was a younger cat that comes on the scene, a younger man, a younger prophet, if you will, that comes alongside of this man, and his name is Zechariah. And that's a book that we'll get into after we're done here. But this young man, he comes on the scene uh, in November of that same year. And so now God has brought another helper. And again, if in fact Haggai is a little older, he brings a younger man. And he comes alongside of him to be his protege. Now I could only imagine that Haggai is so stoked to have another prophet next to him so that he could teach him how to hear God or how it was that he was hearing God. And as I'll talk about that in just a little bit, but the, but the fact of the matter, now there was two of them that had messages from God that, 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 that all of a sudden they are ministering to this people who had been lazy, who had put away the things of God so that they can... Uh, now get things going again. Now they have two voices speaking to them from the Lord. And so Zechariah comes on the scene in November. And so when he begins to share this message on December 18th, he has another guy standing with him saying, Amen. This is what God's speaking. Coming alongside this elderly prophet, if you will. Again, we don't know what happens to, to, uh, to Haggai, but there was another guy who came in to take, take his place after him who would last probably a little longer. And so now the prophet Haggai actually has two messages that he will give on this date, on November 18th, 520 B.C. He has two of them. The first message is for the priests. And it is a message of rebuke and or correction which is not bad. I think oftentimes we think of rebuke, we think of correction. I know in my life, somebody corrects me, I think it's a rebuke. Uh, it's like, no, it's constructive criticism. It's like, I know that last part, criticism, that one I don't like. But again, they're not always bad to be corrected, 
to be rebuked. And that's what this message is, as, and that's what we have read right now just a while ago. The final message that he has will be the last portion from 20 to 23, and that message will go to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And that message is more of an encouragement, but it is also a prophetic message as well. And so he, he tells us here in verse 10, the word of the Lord came, or it tells us, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now, I know that I've touched on this already as we've been looking at Haggai, but I can't, I can't help but think, and I can't help but touch on it again, mainly because I do find it fascinating how this comes about. How is it, Lord, that, that you gave him a word? Again, he didn't have the word of God that we have like this that can speak to us. And, and, and we look at other times when, when we see like, like even uh, Adam, when God came in the cool of the day and he calls for him and we hear about that, of, of how he spoke to him almost face to face like that. We see like when Abraham is, is getting out, he, he, the Lord speaks to him. And during his life, we see angels come through and people speaking to him and visions and stuff like that. So we see that throughout the history that like, like Moses, you know, he went and met with God and he heard God and then he had a message for people. But how did it happen with Agai? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that the word of the Lord comes to this man. We're not told how it does. It's not through a vision. It's not through an angel or else he probably would have told us that. But he doesn't do that. Not like we have examples from other men. Today, we do have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit that speaks to us. Because when somebody comes into your life and, and, and says, hey, thus says the Lord, we, we have this to confirm it with. Because somebody says, hey, thus says the Lord, and it's not jiving with the Word of God, then we're going, it just doesn't jive. It's, 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 I don't think it's from God. Yeah, but I feel it profoundly in my soul. It's like, so are the Mormons, man. They have a, they have a burning in their bosom but it's not right. And so again, we, we have to have some proof. And so when, when I'm reading about Haggai, that the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes to him, I'm thinking in my heart, how did it do that? Was this guy just so in tune with God that all of a sudden, man, he is just understanding that this is God's word? How was it confirmed? I don't know, except that now we have history that we can look back and say, oh, it was prophetic, or, or it happened. But to just say, hey, God spoke to me, it's like, give me chapter and verse, bro. That's what I need. Because we're to test everything. Because many people will come saying, thus says the Lord. And again, man, whether they're saying it publicly or privately, we need to be cautious because we do have the Spirit truth that lives within us. And there's times we just have this little check in our heart going, just doesn't sound right, man. And that's there for a reason. And the Word of God is there for us so that we can test it. I, I, I was also, again, just thinking again, 
How did you do that, Lord? Because I think oftentimes people think that God only speaks to pastors, and he doesn't. He speaks to pastors, but he ta- speaks to you as well. And, and, and so again, it wasn't just because he was a prophet. He was someone who was obedient. He was someone who was uh, uh, adhering to God and, and drawing close to God. And, and it was those kinds of things that he must have been just in a place where God just kind of zeroed in on him and laid the stuff on him so that he can come out and with boldness and with confidence say something. Because God has given them something to say. And it proves to be true. And so in verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And again, there we see that title being being used because this is going to be another heavy little message. Even though he's going to ask them a couple of questions, he's going to kind of hit them right where it hurts. And so again, he says, uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, Ask the priest concerning the law, saying, and then he asked them these two questions. He uses this title because he is going to rebuke them and correct them. And he says it with authority and power. And the Lord says to him, Ask, now go ask the priest. Concerning the law. Now, whatever the question was concerning the law, it wouldn't be a hard question for these guys to answer because he's telling them, you're going to those guys to speak to them. It wouldn't be a hard question for them because they should understand and know everything about the law because the law was right in their little wheelhouse, man. It was the one that you just hit a home run off of, man. It was right there. It was prime. That's where the sweet spot was because they understood the law. They studied the law. They lived the law. So when somebody asked them about the law, they could give you chapter and verse. It's almost like asking a pastor a question about just about anything, any subject of the Bible, man. That pastor better have an answer, somewhat of an answer. If not, it's like, dude, hold on. Let me go get my my Bible, and, and I'll show you where that is. Don't give me your Bible because I can't find it. I'll take mine. Some people give Bibles away. It's like, mm, you ain't get this one. This one's mine. I'll buy you one. But to ask a pastor a question just about on anything, especially if it's in their wheelhouse, right? Especially if it's on money because everybody knows pastors like money. And we know all the, all the verses for money. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but there's some people that do. <clears throat> but, but the priest... They were they, they knew they know the law, they understand the law, they 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 knew the law like they knew the back of their hand, they understood it, and so when the question was brought to them by the prophet from God, it wasn't to trip them up. It wasn't some kind of conniving, you know, to try to get them on something, man. It was straight up. It was a straight up question with something they would understand. So it wasn't to trip them up, but it was to reveal where they had been, where they were at now, and where they would be in the future as a people in regard to sin. You see, God could not bless them the way he wanted to bless them because they had been defiled. 
They had made themselves unclean in so many different ways. And it was an important thing to keep themselves clean before the Lord. Clean and uncleanness uh, was very uh, a very important concept in Jewish living. Those who lived under the covenant, the old covenant, they understood what it meant to be clean and what it meant to be unclean. These were major themes for them because that is what the book of Leviticus is all about. And they understood the book of Leviticus. If a Jew became unclean by touching a dead body or even having an open sore and and touching it and cleaning it and stuff like that, they were to separate themselves from the rest of the camp. And they, they required sometimes to be bathed, which they didn't do all the time. But when they became unclean, they would have to do that in order to be allowed back into the camp. And in some cases, they would have to offer sacrifices to restore that kind of fellowship back with God and with the community. And so it was a big thing for them. So the first question that he asked them here has to do with holiness and or being clean. Again, if, if, if when an animal was presented on the altar as a sacrifice, the meat was considered holy or consecrated. It was set apart and it belonged to the Lord. But it also was set apart for, for the priests to use it for their families. So it, it, this piece of meat was considered holy in that sense. And even the portion that went to the priests, they had to be careful how they ate it, where they ate it, and what they did with the leftovers. So again, all of this had to do with the law that they were familiar with. And so the question is asked, if one carries holy meat in the fold of, the, of his garment, and the e- edge of that garment touches bread or stew or oil or wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? So again, the apron that they would tuck it into and carry it, the guy is saying, he is telling us here, if that meat that is set apart, and now that apron that has been set apart because it carries the meat, if it touched anything else, would that cause something else to become clean? The obvious answer to that was no, it wouldn't. He's basically saying that cleanliness cannot be transmitted. Even though the garment that was already set apart for that meat was already consecrated or set apart. But if it touched anything else, it would not make anything else clean. If anything, it would defile the meat. (laughs) And so the quest, second question has to do with defilement and or uncleanness. And again, the question is posed, basically, if, if one who is unclean be, uh, because of a dead body, because he has touched a dead body or, or, or like any of these things, will, will it be unclean? Okay, I messed that one up. If one who is unclean because of a dead body, touches any of these things, will it become unclean? And the answer is yes, it will, certainly. If, if, you, if you have something, if you're unclean and you touch something else, you can make something else 
unclean. And what Haggai is, is pointing to is that you, you can transmit defilement or uncleanness if one thing or person touches another thing. But you cannot transmit holiness or being clean and make somebody else clean. In, in other words, a sick person can make a healthy person sick. But a healthy person cannot make a sick person healthy. So it's not like because you're sick, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to touch you and make you well. I, I, that just doesn't happen. But if he's sick, you know, if he touches me, he might make me sick. So don't touch me. Right? You know, say, oh, don't touch me. You know, people, it's like, hey, I'm clean, man. I don't want to make you clean. You know, no, people are going, I'm sick. I don't want to make you sick because that's the way it kind of flows. Something that's unclean can make something else unclean. But something that's holy cannot make. And, and again, the concept here is that, is that these people, they had given themselves over to the Lord. And it's interesting because, again, he, he, in verse 14, he calls them this people again instead of my people. And he, he refers to them to this nation. Even though they have come to him, there was still something there that he has to touch on. Because again, the first message that, that he had brought to them was a rebuke and a warning. And as a result, this people got back to work. But apparently there was still some sin that had not been dealt with. And it's almost like God, he, he was seeing the outwardly. Things were looking as if they were back on track from chapter 1, which is good. <laughs> but they could have, and they could have continued to do the outward work of finishing the temple, of completing the work. But somehow God still kind of seen the inside of these people, their thoughts and their heart. And it was almost like outwardly you look clean, but inwardly you're not. And that's what he's dealing with with these people. It's almost like the New Testament puts it, where it says that, that, that outwardly you look good, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so as he's been dealing with these people, the first message of rebuke, with that they, they started getting back to work and doing what they were supposed to, but outwardly, they were still, outwardly they looked different, but inwardly they were still the same. And that's what he's dealing with here. So this, with this message of rebuke and or correction, the Lord wanted to move more on the inward to cleanse them from the inside. So that whatever was done or sacrificed would be holy and sanctified and set apart. Because outwardly they were touching things. It's like you're still defiling the work of the Lord. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, we can be working and we can be doing a lot of things with the wrong motives. Outwardly, everything looks great, but inwardly, things are just the same. 
And that's what he deals with. And that's what he's dealing with these people. Again, obviously, three months earlier, when they had gotten back to work, it was a good move. There was conviction. There was something that happened that stirred them to get back doing the things that God had called them to do. But in those three months, inwardly, God was still checking them. And they had not really gotten broken, if you will. They, had re- they hadn't really dealt with the inside. And so outwardly, they looked really good. But inwardly, they were still not doing what they were supposed to be doing. In other words, the Lord still desires obedience rather than sacrifice. And if they were going to sacrifice, it would have been out of pure obedience, not just to go through the emotions or the the motions with no emotion, with nothing behind it. Now, I'm sure the message that he gave them at this time kind of kind of take, took them a little aback, you know, kind of shocked them a little bit, given the encouragement that they had just received a couple months earlier when, when, when what we covered last week, that again, he was going to do all these things in them and through them, and the temple that they were now working on would be more glorious than the previous one, that God was going to be doing all these things, and all of a sudden he hits them with this other rebuke. But let me say that God doesn't stop correcting us. Just because we got one thing right a few months ago doesn't mean he's going, oh, you're good. Never have to deal with you again, bro. See? It's not like that, you know? Because when, when, when he does something in our life, he continues to do the work because there's always things that he can chip away. There's always things that he can refine. And I think that's, that's going to be constant until we, we, we breathe our last. Because there's always things that that creep back in or that pop back up. And things that God is constantly working in us. And and so he can refine us at the end. And, and, And it's not a bad thing. When God corrects us again, after all these years of walking with the Lord, man, I feel like I'm just starting to stare in step one again in square one. Because it seems like, man, have I learned anything? Well, I know I have, but there's times where I'm feeling like, Man, Lord, you would think I'd get this one right. You would think that I would just just be breezing through life right now. But I think it's harder today than it was when I first started. For some of you young cats are going, please don't tell me that. It's like, no, it's always going to be like that. Because, again, even though he had given them some encouragement and they're back to work and things look like they're on track, he's still saying, oh, yeah, now i got to deal with this one. Now i got to deal with this. And, guys, it's not a bad thing when God's chipping away, chipping away. And people go, yeah, man, he's just, he's just knocking stuff off, man. But it never stops. Because even when he gets down to the fine-tuning and he's just buffing, man, there's still friction going on, you know. It's like, it's like, ah, oh, geez. He's going, no, oh, it's going to look perfect. And so there's always things that God wants to do in our lives. He's always at work. And so he continues on. When he gets to verse 15, he says, And now consider carefully from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple, since those days when one came to the heap of 20 ephah, uh, but there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths, 
from the press, and there was only 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all your labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Now, again, he's dealing with stuff that had been happening for a while there, and he's, he's kind of bringing it back to fine-tune it, to really cons- help them to understand, because once again, he calls them to remember the, the previous uh, economic disasters that they had been going through because of the disobedience of not rebuilding the temple. They had stopped doing it for, for 16 years. They had stopped the work. And for the third of five times in this small chapter or in this small book, the people were to give careful thought to. They were to set their hearts on. They were to carefully consider. Again, going back to chapter 1 when he says, hey, consider your ways. In, in the Amplified, verse 15, sounds like this. It says, and now I pray you, consider what will happen from this day onward. Since the time before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, how, how have you fared? How have you weathered? And then the New Living Translation, it says, look at what has happened to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. And the NIV says, now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. And what he is reminding them of, again, is what he talked about in chapter 1 about their harvest and what had been going on and how they had been coming up in, uh, short in quantity. As much as they were doing, they, they, they were putting their money in, in, in bags that had holes in them. They kept on coming up empty because of their disobedience. And he's bringing them back again, reminding them of where they had been at, that, that the grain um, had decreased 50%, that the grape harvest had decreased 60% from the juices that they were wanting to get. They came up short again. And God was the one that was claiming responsibility for this and for their condition because he says, I struck you with blight. I struck you with mildew and I've I've struck you with, with hail. And all of those had to do with judgment because of their disobedience. And I think oftentimes in our lives, when we're we're doing and doing and doing, but we know that we're not being where we're supposed to be at because of disobedience, that we keep on coming up short. And we're going, Lord, I don't get it. And he's going, well, pay attention to me, man. Pay attention. Consider where you're at. Check your heart right now. Maybe you're coming up empty because you're giving nothing to me. And the things that you're giving to me, they're unclean. There's defilement here, peeps. And that's why he keeps on coming at these guys, and, he, and, he, and he's, he's kind of correcting them in such a harsh manner that he's bringing them back, saying, remember when you kept on coming up short? Where was your heart at? What other things got in the way? What kind of priorities did you have that I got pushed out of the way that were more important? And I'm not saying that, that God is out to just strike people and come, come against people, but he will do what he's got to do to bring you to your knees if you have to. God is not mocked. 
Whatever a, soul, a man sows, that will he will also reap. If he sows to the flesh, that's what, he will, that's what he will reap. If he sows to the Spirit and the things of God, and I add, he will reap those kinds of benefits. And I think oftentimes we've been in this place of just sowing and sowing to the flesh, and we go, dude, where am I at? And all of a sudden you turn around and go, okay, fix it all right now, God. And he's going, I'm sorry, there's some consequences that come along with all this junk. And, and so now it's going to take time, but people are going, but I want it fixed right now. And I know God can do it, but sometimes he's going, no. I, I will strike you with blight. I will strike, strike you with mildew, and I will strike you with hail. Not that he hates us, but he has to take us to the woodshed so that we might learn those lessons. And so that's what he's saying to these people who... who, who built their lives on this agriculture kind of society that when they got punished, it was, it, was, it was huge, catastrophic, if you will. It was huge on their economy for their survival. But God is reminding them as a nation that because they failed, he was now responding with chastisement. And he chastens them because he loves them. And all the while, it was because he's saying, I wanted you to return back to me. I wanted you to come back to me. They had failed like this generations earlier. 200 years earlier, Amos says this. He says, in Amos 4.9, he says, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you did not turn to me. And you can read the rest of that, that portion there that he's going, and I did this to you, and I did this to you, and I did this to you. And all the while saying, because I wanted you to return to me. But you wouldn't. And guys, how come we're so stubborn like that? That, that when things start going downhill for us, we're blaming God instead of just falling on our face going, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I, I've been giving you all this sacrifice, but what you really wanted was obedience on my part. That's what you wanted from me, God. And, and I think we often put church in, in front of all of this stuff or ministries thinking, but I'm doing it for you. He's going, you're not doing it for me. You're doing it for you, dude. And I think oftentimes, even ministry can get in the way that we're working, 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 and God's going, hey, I'm over here, dude. I'm over here. And you go, but I'm working for you. You go, nope, you're working for yourself, or you're working for your pastor, or you're working for that, that whatever, pat on the back. And so there's times that God will, will truly just convict us in such a way that he's going, I'm only doing this so we can have this relationship. I want to be close to you. And I'll do whatever it takes to knock you off your knees or knock you off your feet onto your knees. I'll pull the rug from under you if I have to. And again, I know that even within the Christian community, we go, man, but why would God do that? It's like maybe because he loves you. Maybe because he wants to have such a closeness with you that he will do just like he did with these people. And he was reminding them, hey, consider your ways. Check your heart. Check your heart, man. And so Haggai, again, he issues this, 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 this message, but there's a call to repentance. 
And if you repent, again, God would be assuring them a blessing because of that. And I think he was reminding them, just like Solomon, when he first dedicated the temple, when he said in, in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. You see, he's ready to heal, but he's not afraid to bring blight. <laughs> he's not afraid to bring hail. He's not afraid to do all those things in your life so that you can come back to him in such a way where, where you are considering where you're at. I love the fact that, again, he, he challenges them about their seed. Is it still in the barn and, and all these things? And now I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of just moving ahead because I'm going to miss out on a lot here. But, but when he says that, do you still have seed in your barn? The answer would be no, we don't. We, we've been coming up short. There's not enough. Not for our, our, our daily sustenance, our, 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 our regular staples like seed and, 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 and grapes and, and oil, but also the luxury things. They didn't have the figs or the pomegranates because they hadn't given careful thought to any of those things. But in the end here, he says, but... And he's telling them, consider your ways, because from this day forward, if you truly repent, if you truly seek my face, he says, I will bless you. I will bless you. I will pour out a blessing that you won't be able to handle it. Your vats will overflow. And when you go, there will be plenty, because you've been so obedient to me. It's all about obedience, guys. He deals with our disobedience. He really does. You might just go, well, I'm just stubborn that way because I'm Mexican or I'm Italian. or I'm, It's like, big deal, man. You're a Christian. Because we, we, we can often say those things, right? Oh, it's because of, it's like, I'm sorry. All this trumps all of that. Because he wants obedience. I don't care what you are or who you are. That's what he's asked us. And it kind of goes back to, to, again, this whole part in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, there were in, 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 in middle or late December at this time, December 18th. And again, it, it think the crops hadn't gone well for them. But yet he is calling them to trust them, trust him for a future harvest. Verse 20. It says, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdom. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and the riders shall come down. Everyone, uh, everyone sh uh, by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shethiel, uh, says the Lord, and I will make him a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now again, here the, on that same on that same day of May eighteen or December eighteenth. 
520 BC, he shares another message, his fifth message, but this one is spoken to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's the governor. He's, he's the one that oversees this other, this whole thing. That other one was for the priest, more than likely, speaking to, to Joshua, but now he's speaking to Zerubbabel, and he's saying from, from him, he, the, this is what the word is saying, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiachin, who was the second to the last king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so Zerubbabel will end up or is, is one of the royal line of David. He ends up being part of that, that, that kingship, but he doesn't rule on a throne. He's the governor here. And instead of wearing a crown and a throne, he humbles himself as a governor with the struggling remnant that is with him. And they're trying to rebuild this, this temple that will look nothing like the glorious temple. But God's spirit will dwell in them because he says, I will be with you guys, as we learned last week. And so you could imagine that he could have been discouraged knowing that he comes from the bloodline of David, that he, he has that kingship kind of bloodline, but he is not that. He is a governor. And it's interesting because he will end up in, in Jesus' lineage in Matthew and in Luke because he is part of that line. And God was, was speaking to him saying, I will shake heaven and earth and I will do all these things, not just in this kingdom that you are in right now, but 400 years later through that kingdom, I will shake everything because the Messiah will come through you in this kingdom. But he was also looking at the second coming of Christ too. That in the end, in that kingdom, at the end, he will shake everything. All the Gentile kingdoms will be overthrown. Speaking of that final battle before the, the kingdom is set up in, in, uh, in, uh, on the earth. And so he is encouraging this guy who might have been discouraged. And at the end, verse 23 says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, says the Lord, and make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And again, that calling him my servant, again, an exclusive title uh, of one reserved for somebody who is chosen, and that was a rubber bell. Again, he, he would be in that royal line, and he would have that signet ring, or he would be that signet ring that was in, like an official signature. And again, it's interesting because to his great-grandfather, God said that he was going to pull the signet ring off of him in Jeremiah 22, 24, that he would pull it off of him. And it seems that here God is promising to reverse that judgment, to renew his promise to David that there would be one that would sit on the throne, that would be in that line, and he would give us that Savior, that Messiah eventually. And so again, he would come through through this lineage. And so, again, he had just encouraged him to say, I have chosen you. I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. And again, man, people might, might, might overlook who Zerubbabel was, but he was an important figure in this time. Because, again, the nation of Israel was struggling, and God brought him, and God brought prophets to speak to him, to say, you're important. I've chosen you. Just like he's chosen you and chosen you. We might not be priests or, or, or kings like him, but the Bible calls us that, that we're chosen of him, to be a royal priesthood, 
a chosen nation, chosen people for his glory. Guys, let's get after doing his work. If you're playing games, knock it off because God will knock it off for you. And it's better to, to humble yourself than have him humble you. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and for this short little book that's been so powerful and is just speaking uh, loudly to me, Lord. And I'm just so grateful that, that you saw it fit, Lord God, for me to study this, uh, that you have spoken so much to me through this. And I pray that it has for us as a church, Lord. Again, Lord, I don't think it's a coincidence that with all that we've gone through in the last couple of years, you have us in this portion of your word in the OT, Lord, to remind us, Lord God, of the work that you're willing to do. Lord, you're willing to, to bring blight into our lives, Lord, if we're disobedient. You're willing, Lord God, to bring hail and to bring all these things in our lives, Lord God, if we're, if we're stubborn and rebellious. And so, Lord, I pray that you would break us and, or, or that we would break, humble ourselves, Lord God, um, because it hurts less. <laughs> but, Lord, help us to draw close to you because you promised that if we do, you will draw close to us. And so we honor you tonight. And we thank you, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand, guys, as we sing this last song.